Well, thanks again for listening to the Park Hills podcast. This week, we're going to dive into Song of Songs and all of the glory that that entails, or at least some of the glory that that entails. If you're liking this and other things that we're doing, uh, the place to find us is parkhillschurch.com or the Park Hills Church app. So last episode, we talked about gender roles, wisdom, and foolish women. This week, we dive into Song of Songs, which is <laughs> maybe even more about gender roles. Books that make us blush. That is exactly what this is, yes. So if you're coming to this podcast thinking, ooh, they're finally going to get into some spicy topics, I don't know that we're necessarily going to do that. We're going to try to keep this on the up and up. So you don't have to kick your kids out of the room, uh, but... You know, it is Song of Songs, so if something weird does come out of our mouth or we say something strange that you think, is that really in the Bible? Go look. It is. But, yeah, we're not going to touch on the weird stuff that some people do. Well, maybe we will. We'll see. It's dangerous to make such a promise. But, (laughs) honestly, there is some that look at Scripture and go, should this have even been in there? Right. Right. Aren't those who have questioned that? Yeah. Um, But what an interesting interesting account and it it is something that has its value and it helps us look at this subject which we tend to avoid and and work our way through what's going on here and go really is this this is scripture there's a ton of middle eastern erotic love poetry out there and what most scholars do when they're about to create a commentary on song of solomon and I've, I've read a number of the, you know, the introductions to these commentaries. The first thing they say is, Song of Solomon is difficult to mess with. And second, I've spent way too much time in love poetry from the Middle East in, the, in this time period. So there's enough out there. But I will say one of the things that I often hear from, from scholars as they work through Song of Solomon, or sometimes it's called Song of Songs, which if you're going to be really proud of yourself and overly, you know, arrogant almost to call your song song of songs that's incredible that's true that's be like my sermon of sermon i'm going to give sunday wow everyone you heard it here first (laughs) sermon Uh, of sermons you know can you imagine if you said my this is the song of songs and phil collins looks at you like no or sting Sting. those are from your time okay so back to the idea so if you're a scholar and you're looking at song of songs or song of solomon you're you're spending way too much time in ancient literature, but then you also start to go, there's something remarkably different about this book than the others, which is part of the reason why it's actually in the text, right? Yeah, I mean, you look at it and, you know, just to read through it, it's almost uncomfortable Some because some of the descriptions aren't, aren't ones that we would consider complimentary. You know, I, I don't think uh, saying your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies and things like that, or your nose is like a Tower of Lebanon. The Tower of Lebanon one, though, has worked for me. Oh, really? Ask okay. Heidi about it okay. sometimes. She, okay, that's she really good. liked it. But the, the reality is here, and part of the reason why we understand it, it does fit, is that 
Culture doesn't want to admit it, but God is the one who designed male and female, and he designed them to have this passionate uh, relationship, and in the marriage context, to have it be a passionate physical relationship and to have that desire for one another. And, and you know, so often with what our culture has tried to drive forward with what sex should be or how how readily you should be able to do whatever you want with whomever you want, we tend to then lump what good sexuality is between a husband and wife in a marriage relationship, which is beautiful by his design. We tend to then make that seem dirty or wrong because of what culture has done with it and and the sinful application in a sexual context. And so we tend to get uncomfortable with this, but it's a great reminder of God placing Adam and Eve in the garden and telling them to be fruitful and multiply and to to enjoy one another's presence and and to have that beautiful relationship. And and really this speaks to that. I mean they just talk of their passion for one another, how much they they long for each other and uh, a beautiful, beautiful description of, of God, what God designed it to be. And Paul uses that imagery a lot in the New Testament, this idea that this mystery of the way that Christ loves his church is similar to this mystery of marriage. Yeah. That there, there's enough difference, but yet there's this sacrificial love that's supposed to be going both ways that ultimately shows the world what it looks like to truly surrender to someone else and to walk with them through this amazing thing. That sacrificial is so totally. key, isn't it? Totally. So with that said, you, you've said it a few times, and I think this is incredibly important that people hear this loud and clear. We are talking about this type of love within the marriage covenant. Mm-hmm. There is no other way around this. So whether we're doing premarital counseling, or we're talking with a young couple who is dating you know, for the first time and they're thinking about what is our relationship supposed to look like and be like, the Bible is very clear. There is no position here where all of a sudden God's just kind of going, ah, yeah, do what you want, I guess. It's not a big deal. It is a very big deal. It is. And so one of the key phrases that comes up in Song of Songs a lot is this idea of don't awaken love before it's time. This idea that God is saying through the, the this beautiful poem going back and forth is that love is a beautiful, amazing thing that is God-ordained, and it's, it's gorgeous, and it's fun, and it's exciting, and it's, it's just amazing for human beings to go through it. But you're not supposed to open the floodgates too early. And within the marriage covenant, you know, it's, it's all hold, no holds bar, everything's good to go. But before that, it's not that we're prudes because we say we, we would prefer that you don't do this uh, outside of the marriage covenant. It's really more that there's a safety net within the marriage covenant to feel full freedom and expression with one another that you don't have because of the shame and guilt of the fall beforehand. And so our culture will tell us that we're wrong. Our culture will tell us that we are prudes or whatever else, you know, whatever word you want to use there for us. But if the Bible here is saying, don't awaken love before it's time, there's a, there's a reason for this book here being here, which by the way, is part of the reason why this poem is in here versus all the other Middle Eastern love poems. Cause some of those are adulterous. Some of those are, you know, scandals before marriage sure. type stuff. And part of what really defines this one versus the others is there's this pursuit before marriage, but nothing's happening. And this phrase keeps being used, don't awaken love before it's time. And then there is a, a union and a consummation of marriage halfway through this book. 
And then there's this beautiful love song at the end of it. Uh, she's sort of dreaming and searching for her lover and she can't find him and she's concerned that he's not coming back. And then lo and behold, he's there the whole time. That's really what this poem's about. Whereas I don't know many poems like that in our culture and there weren't any many poems like that in that culture. And so I totally think you're right. It's partly saying God is in this, but also there's a different way of doing this than the rest of the world would say we should do it. And yet again, that there's that counter-cultural or counterintuitive way that God has designed this take your time, slow down. And, and years ago I read, and I can't even remember, surprise, surprise, I can't remember who it was, but they were talking about the stages of a romantic relationship. And anybody that's had a relationship like this and even gone on to marriage and, and um, you know that there's this dynamic element to each phase. And I think this author divided it into seven stages of a romantic relationship, but it was that initial, that initial attraction, just seeing them from afar. And there's this, you know, sort of the warm fuzzies or whatever, and then just being near them and talking to them and building some sort of emotional intimacy through conversation, whether it's, you know, lighter or deeper. And then, then maybe it's that first time that, that, your hands touch each other and, the, and there's, there's a, a phase for that. And, and you think about what our culture pushes with any sort of media or the internet or, or shows it's, it's, they meet and next thing you know, they're in bed and, and it really idolizes it. It's like going to that seventh stage as this author would put it. Right. And talk about awakening love too soon. And, right. and the sad part is you you jump to that final stage and you can't go back and experience those other elements right. to their degree. Right. And I thought that was such a, a wise observation because it's true. Yep. You know, a couple that, that, you know, now kisses on their dates, they don't go back to not doing that or they don't go back to the significance of the holding hand. There's, those things have significance, but there's that idea of this wisdom. Don't awaken love mm -hmm. too soon. And, and we uh, generally are impatient. We, we want things now, and especially with the culture driving things the way they do and saying, you, this is how you do things. And it's like, oh, you're missing out on that. And I, just I remember in my dating days with Charmaine just how many walks we went on and, and how I looked forward to that time when we would hold hands. And, and it, it was a long time, which was uncustomary for me. <laughs> But it was wonderful, and what neat uh, stages of it. It just, by just trusting that, that everything has its time. Right. And, you know, that's not the way our culture thinks. It's just, no, I, got every, I want everything that I want, and I want it now. And it's like, oh, don't be foolish. Totally. And so then you add sex and dating to the way that the Bible is countercultural. Again, if you haven't noticed yet, as we're walking through the Bible in a year, this whole book really pushes back on so many things that we are told. This is the way to be. This is the way to think. This is the way to act. And the, the truth is, the Bible keeps telling us, I have a better way for you, Proverbs, Psalms, Genesis. Do you trust that? Do you believe that? And then we move to Song of Songs, and it's, at first it makes us blush, but then we kind of dig into it a little bit. We go, oh, there's also a way to do this within the way that God wants it to be. So, like, for example, 412 says, a garden locked is my sister, my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. And a lot of the commentaries I've consulted on Song of Solomon over the years say, yeah, a, a spring that's locked in a fountain that's sealed that you can't get to, 
is what it's supposed to be like before you, you get married. It, and there's an allure to that. There's an excitement. Absolutely. Of something to look forward to and, and something to experience together forever. And then once you're in the covenant together, you go to 812 and it's a similar thing, but it says a little differently. My vineyard, my very own is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand and the keepers of the fruit 200. And the idea is uh, 412 is I'm, I'm locked. I'm, I'm separate. We're, we're keeping it this way. And then once the, the marriage is complete in this book, then it is, we are, now it's still locked, but it's locked from everybody else, right? It's yeah. this idea that we have shared vineyards now, so to speak. And, and it, this is very weird language to be using, right? But this idea of now that we've sort of blocked everybody out, neither one of us are open to the market. We are, we are just us. And within this context, this, this covenant we've made, we are locked together forever and we can fully experience everything we have to offer each other with no fear, no rep, you know, no reprimand, and we're not opening up to anybody else. We're done, mm-hmm. which is a really cool idea. And it I is. wish, and and I, we've all dealt with marriages that are crumbling because of these bonds being abused, right? Or yeah. because of somebody stepping out of that locked vineyard and deciding to go do something else down the road. And the issue is, we all fear that pain. We all fear. You know, I've talked to tons of people who are thinking about getting married and just like, I don't know if I could ever handle someone walking out of me. And it's like, well, if you both sacrifice yourself to, to be in this marriage relationship that we're talking about and you do it the way God wants it to be done, you're not responsible for everybody else. But if you're both responsible to it, it, it ends up being a beautiful story. And one of the things I would love to say is, you know, the, you were talking about kissing. You know, kisses at, at the beginning of your relationship have a certain passion and feel to them. And then the longer you're married, I don't know that they have the same passion, but they mean more than they did in the beginning. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? Good observation. There's a deeper significance to them. There's something really great. And I remember watching when I was little, watching my grandparents, they never leave the house unless they kiss each other. So if she's like, I'm just going to go grab groceries, she'll like walk into the kitchen and find him. And then they find each other and they just give each other a little peck. And that little peck I watched over years and years and years. And then I started dating and all that kind of thing. And I realized that peck is way more significant than anything I've had. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm married, those those pecks mean more to me than what, you know, that first time I got to kiss Heidi, you know what I'm saying? Or the uh, you know, the 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 kiss that we gave each other on our on our during our wedding. You know, it mm-hmm. was incredibly significant and it was great. But I mean, I would take today over what those two kids were about to face. You know what I'm saying? Like we yeah. are so much different and better because we've walked through this together and our it uses this language, our vineyards haven't been open to anybody else. And so we've cool. grown and we've matured together. And now, like, man, that's a deep significance. So I'm looking forward to the 65-year-old me, you know, kissing the almost 65-year-old Heidi. She's older than me, so it's funny. To, <laughs> I hope she listens to this and hits me later. So, But you know what I'm saying? Like, that's kind of the idea. And I think that's what this book is exploring and ex- explaining. And it's just so countercultural. We don't really, we don't think it through. It, it's sad when... The ways and the designs of our God are not applied to life mm-hmm. because it just leads to pain and frustration. And God's going, no, I've got a different way. Yeah, the culture is going to mock you or they're, they're not going to understand. I've got a different way and it works. I made you. I made her. I made him. I, you know, I've got a plan. Trust me. Trust me.